0: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton.
1: My name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Brave work, tough conversations, whole hearts.
0: Brene Brown is an international superstar. She has uh, some phenomenal TED Talks in terms of like the top five most viewed with tens of millions of views. This is her fifth book we did Daring Greatly previously. She's got a big Netflix doco uh, and yeah, she's very, very well respected around the world.
1: So this book is a culmination of a lot of her work in the context of leadership within organizations. What she's collected is interview data for over 20 years. So she's interviewed over 150 C-level leaders. She has over 400,000 pieces of data and this is all she wants to live in a world with braver, bolder leaders and pass on the world much better to the future generations.
0: So this book is about leadership and she defines a leader as anyone who takes responsibility for finding potential in people and processes or anyone who has the courage to develop that potential. So it's obviously – it's not just the, the captain of the footy team. It's not just the CEO of the organization. It's anyone who is willing to take that courage and responsibility uh, and anyone can tap into that. Anyone can be a leader.
1: So as you'd expect, there's a whole lack of leadership and a whole bunch of issues she's found through her research and we've uh, we've outlined six here which we think are the most critical and the first one is the fact that we avoid tough conversations. So we don't really like to give honest, productive feedback. So some leaders say it's a lack of courage but most say it's because the cultural norm of being nice and polite. I mean that's something personally that I've uh, experienced more of: is people being nice and polite and really afraid of giving honest feedback. And also, a lot of the time, I think people don't like getting honest feedback. Mm. So, some cultures, work organizations would just tend to lean toward this nice and polite nature rather than just being honest and blunt.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a big one that holds organizations back. Uh, And another big one is that rather than spending time proactively acknowledging and addressing the fears and feelings that show up during change and upheaval, we actually spend an unreasonable amount of time managing problematic behaviors. So it probably is easier to see some behavior and try to fix it rather than actually taking the time to proactively acknowledge the fears and feelings that we all have.
1: Yeah, it'd be a pretty awkward conversation if you decide, you know, on the Monday morning just started talking about all the shit you're scared of within the people <laughs> in the organization. And again, you know, some, these are the the kind of things that need to be normal in cultures to embrace this daring leadership Third thing is diminishing trust caused by the lack of connection and empathy.
0: Yeah, it is obviously much tougher to connect with someone, to have empathy for someone or with someone and it's a lot easier to have a more clinical approach if you're a leader uh, and obviously having that clinical approach, not having that connection, diminishes trust. Another big one is that not enough people are taking smart risks or creating or sharing bold ideas to meet the challenging demand and the insatiable need for innovation. There's a lot of change going on around the world and the brave, bold organizations will win and those brave, bold organizations need daring leaders, but of course, there aren't enough of them.
1: This is addressed a lot later in the book is uh, how to really lean into the vulnerability that's associated with innovation because it always is much safer to stay in the, the comfort zone, uh, do what the status quo has always been like and not do any change. The fifth one is too much shame and blame and not enough accountability and learning.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's easy to blame people and often when you're on the receiving end as well, it's easy to feel shame but it's much tougher but much more important to admit that you are still learning, that you do need to learn and also to take accountability. And the sixth big papa she talks about is that people are opting out of vital conversations because they don't want to look wrong. You know, it is it is these tough conversations; they are important, but it's a lot easier to just opt out.
1: So they're the big six issues that she's seen through her research, and you know, I think there's one piece of glue that bounds them all together, and it's really connectioning connecting, and uh, understanding emotion. And I think that's where Brené's style is very different to all other leadership books out there, and why she's like gathered such a following. And the solution to all of this is daring leadership. And this is what the whole book is about and it's broken up into three different sections.
0: Yeah, so daring leadership is obviously the, the model that we want to strive to achieve. Uh, she dif- distinguishes that from armoured leadership, which is the, the old way of doing it, which is probably what most people are doing and we all need to start to move towards this daring leadership. One important part of daring leadership is courage. So, you need courage. But you can't get to courage without rumbling with vulnerability. And that's a term that will come up a lot in this book is uh, a rumble with vulnerability.
1: Yeah, she says, A rumble is a discussion, conversation, a meeting, or defined by a commitment to lean into vulnerability, to stay curious and generous, to stick with the messy middle of problem identification and solving. So remember, you know, it's being able to identify and deal with these emotions And rumble with that feeling of vulnerability that is inherent in, you know, actually daring in your leadership rather than just
0: staying in the safety. Yeah, exactly. It's very different from uh, a meeting where you discuss what's going on. A rumble is a very different type of meeting where you talk about the real shit and the real vulnerability.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's scary. Yeah,
0: she says we need to, you know, be fearless. We need to own what we're doing. We need to listen with the same passion with which we want to be heard. She says that we need to embrace the suck uh, and we need to... And we need to rumble. <laughs> <laughs>
1: need to rumble in the jungle, baby. It's interesting that um, she says feeling brave, you can feel brave and afraid at the exact same time. Mm. So, the people who, who can lean into those vulnerable moments might be really scared as they're doing it uh, quite naturally, but it's it's just part of the package deal of of rumbling in the jungle and...
0: Yeah. As you said there, that you can be brave and afraid at the exact same time. And the reason being is that courage and fear are not mutually exclusive. They're not opposites. It's not either you're courageous or you're fearful. It's In fact, they often go together. And the whole point of courage is that you have the fear, uh, you are afraid of whatever's coming, but you decide to do it anyway. And that's what the element of courage is, as opposed to some other things, which is you know fearlessness, uh, which is not a good thing. Courage, feeling a fear and doing it anyway, that's what we want to strive towards.
1: I think that feeling of fear and then acting anyway should be a proxy for daring leadership. Mm. So, the more you're feeling that fear and discomfort in what you're doing, whether it's a conversation or presenting a new idea or anything you're doing in your workplace, uh, it means you're actually doing daring leadership. If each day you're comfortable, you get home and you haven't really had any fear at all and you do that for weeks and weeks, you're almost certainly not in the, in the, the category of a leader as Brene would define it.
0: Most certainly, mate. And uh, number two is that self-awareness and self-love matter. And in fact, they're probably pretty vital because who we are is how we lead. You know, we can't you know, rely on putting up external barriers and putting on this armor to go into leadership, having some kind of made-up persona as to who we are, we need to truly understand ourselves. We need to have that true self-awareness and, you know, understand our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, and rather than using them to protect ourselves, use it to be a daring leader.
1: And the third section of the book is is that courage is contagious. So, if we're going to scale daring leadership, we need a culture with brave work, tough conversations, and whole hearts And the armor that you were just talking about, it's not necessary. And most importantly, it's not rewarded because a lot of workplaces reward the people who are sitting there with a whole bunch of armor and not the people who are taking off the armor and embracing risks and failure. So they're the people we need to reward instead.
0: Yeah, that's it. So that's where we are now. So we've talked about her research with her her company and all of her books and what she's found in the real world. She's found that there are a whole bunch of behaviors that are really holding us back. And the solution to that, of course, is daring leadership. And so that's what the rest of the the book about. That's what the rest of the book is about. That we're going to talk about. How do we actually achieve this daring leadership?
1: So what this book does, it plays on the word daring, uh, in as daring leadership, like she did with daring greatly. And this phrase is taken from Theodore Roosevelt's. A really famous speech called Citizen Citizen in a Republic or better known as Man in the Arena. And I think it's a pretty incredible quote and something that stuck with me since I read it. The quote goes like this. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end of the triumph of higher achievement and at the worst he fails, he fails daring greatly.
0: That's it. It's not the critic who counts, the people who are on the sidelines trying to throw shit at you when you're actually in the arena, trying to be vulnerable, trying to be a daring leader, trying to have courage, trying to do the right thing, drive your uh, organization forward. Uh, The people who are on the sidelines who are the critics, they're going to be there no matter what, but they're not the ones who count. The only people you should be listening to and taking heedance of is the people who are actually in the arena as well. And you want to obviously. Uh, As many people in the arena as possible and as very few critics as possible because fuck those critics.
1: If you're someone who is erring on the side of actually hopping in the arena where you're going to get some blood and sweat and dust put all over your face, it's probably worth not looking at the criticism that you're getting from the people in the sidelines. Be selective and only listen to those who are in the arena. And This is what Brene talks about in all of her presentations and all of her books
0: and a few vital elements of stepping into the arena to become a daring leader is firstly, take the call to courage. And one big thing that she talks about is you need to be clear. Clear is kind. Unclear is unkind. You might think that by, you know, giving some vague advice that doesn't really cut to the core of someone, you're actually doing the right thing. But because you're giving such unclear feedback, it doesn't help them whatsoever. It actually makes it worse. If you say that, you know, the what you know the presentation you did it was okay. Uh, it wasn't the best. I'm sure you can do better later. That's very unclear. You've got no idea what you did wrong. Uh, and they're probably then going to go away in their brain at night. They're going to stew. They're going to think about all the things they could have done wrong. And in their mind, they're going to blow it up to much worse than it probably actually was. If you have the courage to be clear, give clear feedback and clear advice, it's going to be much kinder in the end. You're going to tell them exactly what was wrong? What you didn't like about it? You're going to tell them exactly what they need to improve on, and they're going to weigh, go away from that, realizing that they know exactly what they can do to do better next time.
1: Yeah, being clear is in the short term really scary, but in the in the long term, I think it will you know develop some kind of respect about yourself and mm. letting know people that you're a straight shooter and everything that comes from your mouth is coming with from an honest place and. Uh, a place where you got the best intentions for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think being unclear is very selfish because it's it's easier for you, but then for them, it's going to be much worse. Whereas being clear is selfless because it is much tougher for you in the moment, but it's going to be a lot better for them.
1: When I cop some criticism, I always feel in the short term, I do feel that pain, and I might mm. I might seem like I'm pissed off, and immediately that person will you know think, feel oh back. shit, I shouldn't have said yep. that. But, you know, then three days later, I'll wake up and I'll always, you know, respect everything that that one person said. I mean, so that's one fear is, is being clear where we can actually confront this fear and take the call to courage. But fear comes in a whole wide variety and a whole different package, a uh, bunch of different packages. And a lot of the time, the things we fear the most hold the biggest treasure. I mean, she quotes Joseph Campbell here saying, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. So, a lot of the times, the things that you're most scared of, the things you're most scared of bringing up and rumbling with this vulnerability uh, have probably the biggest upside after you go in there and face uh, whatever's uh, awaiting you in the arena.
0: So, that's the first one is that we need to take that call to courage. We need to have the courage to realize that whatever our fear is, it's probably pointing us in the right direction and we need to overcome it, have that courage to feel the fear and do it anyway. Now, the second aspect of daring leadership is avoiding the armory. When things are tough, it's very easy to whack a bit of armor over the top, have something that you can use to protect yourself against some of, against feeling the feelings, uh, but a daring leader avoids picking up that armory.
1: Yeah, when you walk into the arena, you, it, you know if you take this armory off, you're left exposed. So, she uses this as the metaphor – of the times when you need to take off the armory to actually embrace the arena and then just cop all the, the, the shit that's going to be flying your way. She says, vulnerability is the last thing that you want to see in me but it's the first thing that we look for in other people. So, at about 11 or 12, it's really easy to see the vulnerability in, in kids. You know, they're when they're running around, there's no real armory on them but as we're Turn adult, and we layer and layer more experiences, which make us really close up as people and close our hearts to these new new experiences. We end up with this big vulnerability we we put onto onto ourselves, which uh, avoids which avoids us dealing with the emotions and uh, daring greatly in the arena.
0: One of the biggest sources of armor, especially in the in the workplace, uh, is perfectionism. It's a type of armor that most people pick up and put on because you know you might think that you want to do everything perfectly and you might think that's a good trait to have to try to want to make everything perfect, but it's actually a very defensive move. What you're trying to do, you're trying to earn approval, but what you're really doing is hiding because if something's not perfect, you're not going to do it and it's probably easier to back away then out of the sense that oh, if I can't do this properly, if I can't do this perfect, maybe someone else should do it.
1: Yeah, perfection is the enemy of done, and it's definitely the enemy of productivity, especially in work cultures who are truly innovative. And you know, you're meant to be sharing your your prototypes of your ideas, which aren't fully fully fleshed out and they've got holes through them. But if you're a perfectionist, you're waiting until an idea has got no holes in them, and you know, and, and it's a it's just avoidance of that critical critical conversation and feedback for whatever your ID really needs to actually grow into something that's going to be useful?
0: Anything new and important is obviously not going to be perfect the first time. And if we're saying that the world's changing and we need daring leaders, we need to be innovative, we need to take risks, that flies in the face of perfectionism. Perfectionism is going to kill all of those things. Because obviously, if we're trying to do something brand new, we're trying to take a risk It's not ever going to be perfect and if you're striving to be perfect, then you can't possibly be innovative and you can't possibly take new risks.
1: Yeah, some people are just waiting until they're bulletproof before they enter the arena but when you do, you're really sacrificing all the opportunities that in the long run may not even be recoverable and you're squandering your precious time as you're waiting there and procrastinating until this point of being bulletproof. So, you're turning back on all the gifts that you've got and all the contributions that you might be able to give. So, This idea of perfection, it is really seductive in drawing you in, but perfection actually doesn't even exist in the human experience.
0: Another big type of armor in the workplace especially is the armor of crazy busy. So she said that this is like a bit of a shield that we can sort of use to move away from what's truly important. If we can get so busy that we can fill our calendar up with meetings and we can have hundreds of emails that we need to trawl through and we can just be busy, 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 it's a way of hiding from the truly important work because the emails and the meetings and the busyness, that's not important. The truly important work that takes the fear, that takes the courage, uh, you're going to say, no, I'm too busy, hand that over to someone else.
1: Yeah, if you think back to seven habits of highly effective people, now, quadrant two is where you want to be in terms of planning where you're going with with your life. It's the way you're really thinking from the end in mind what you want to be doing with your life. But if you're crazy busy, you never have to enter into that quadrant at all. You can just stay in quadrant one being crazy busy and uh, assuming that you're important because you're busy. Another chunk or plate of armor that we throw on as we're hopping into the arena is is serpenting. So, this is really always trying to dodge vulnerability rather than facing it head on. Um, and this can come in certain ways that, you know, if someone asks you to, uh, you know, explain what you're doing in your work and you might find a, and you know something's like that's coming up in the afternoon and then you go home sick because you don't want to deal with that uh, situation. When you're doing stuff like that, then you're serpenting.
0: So, the third aspect of daring leadership so far, we've had, the, we've had courage. We've had avoiding armory. The third aspect of daring leadership is all about shame. And there's a big difference between shame and guilt. So guilt is a feeling that I did something bad, but shame is the next level beyond that to thinking I am bad. And obviously, guilt is acceptable if you do something bad, then at some point, you're going to have to realize that, yeah, you were probably guilty for something, but moving it then into shame is definitely not the right answer.
1: Yeah, it's a feeling that washes over us, makes us feel really flawed and question our own worth and whether we're worthy of love or belonging and connection, and it's a really powerful experience and it's very debilitating.
0: Yeah, researchers often call shame a master emotion. It's this, emotion, it's this emotion of not feeling good enough and it has so much power over us. It makes us feel like we're not worthy of connection, belonging or love. It's something that if you have such a deep sense of shame, you can really shut off from all of those around you.
1: Mm, it's not good. And uh, she's got the one, two, three. She just gives a little intro class to it. And one of the aspects is that we've all got it. And it's one of the most primitive emotions that we experience. And the second thing is the only people who don't, experience shame are those who lack empathy and connection and the third is we're all afraid to talk about shame and the less we talk about it, the more it controls our lives. So, unfortunately, I've never spoken about shame. Yeah, neither. <laughs> so, it's probably got the, the, the on-cruise control, we're just controlling our lives if uh, we're following this formula
0: here. One way that shame rears its ugly head uh, would be like covering up a mistake that you've done at work so that you don't get caught. So obviously, uh, if you're, something's not working, you've done something wrong, rather than feeling the guilt, taking accountability, taking responsibility, we might try to cover it up instead.
1: Yeah, another example would be say if you've done something and you've put all this effort into a piece of work and you're really proud of it and you think it's amazing, then you show it to the client or your boss or something like that, and then they tell you it's, uh, it's not really what they were expecting and it's not that, it's not that good and, and all that. So, you know, your expectations get blown and then you're walking off with that serious feeling of shame.
0: Mate, the tone of your voice switched a little bit there. Was that a personal experience?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it happens sometime recently. But I don't know, it's on the top of the brain and there's, you'd feel a bit of pain, <laughs> pain in my voice. So, I don't know what happened. But I think it's, I think we're, we're still alive and we're still kicking. Maybe because I'm talking about the shame, it's going to slowly, yeah. <laughs> slowly dissipate away.
0: And so one big cure for for the example that you just gave is to separate the self from the work so like if you've done something that you've become so attached to that you've like hitched your self-worth to what you've created you're pretty much you're unlikely to share it because any negative feedback on that you're going to not be feeling the guilt you're going to be feeling the shame instead so rather than becoming so attached to something that we attach our self-worth to what we've created uh then that's a that's a very bad spot to be in. we need to separate ourself from our work
1: so if you're experiencing shame, you're thinking uh, you're not good, and and your work's no good, and 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 all of that, then and if, if this is permeating through your culture, you've really got no hope of innovation within your work culture. If you've got a work, if you've got a work culture where everyone's attaching their self worth to shame there's going to really be very little point to innovate because every time that you share an idea that's a little bit half-baked and everyone's identity attached to these ideas, then you know everyone's incentivized to just stay on the sidelines and not hop in the arena and take the vulnerability armor off and uh, share the half-baked ideas. Okay,
0: so let's reset what we've covered before finishing her off. Firstly, there are a hell of a lot of behaviors in the workplace that are really uh, holding us back They're getting in the way of organizational development. Some of those things like avoiding the tough conversations. Some of those things like not addressing the true fears and feelings and just trying to attack some kind of problem behavior. Things like uh, a diminished sense of trust because we're not truly connecting or empathizing with others. These are all the behaviors that are holding us back. And so instead to overcome this, we need to take on this daring leadership. So
1: all those different behaviors really have the thing in common where you aren't embracing vulnerability and even better what Brené's been talking about is you need to actually rumble in the jungle <laughs> with uh, with with vulnerability and that's hopping into the arena even though that you're going to get smacked up there's going to be blood on your face you're going to get thrown on the ground but you're still going to take your armor off anyway because this is your choice to be in the arena and don't be on the sidelines being the one hurling the abuse
0: and as part of this daring leadership you need Uh, You need to take that call to courage. You need to have the courage to be clear, have the tough conversations, feel the fear and do it anyway.
1: You need to avoid the armory. Take off the armor when you're hopping the arena. Don't be a perfectionist.
0: And you need to realize that everybody feels shame, but nobody wants to talk about shame. And shame is that master emotion that drives a lot of our behaviors. So we need to be able to recognize shame and not only ourselves, but help other people move past the shame.